Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and eating advocate, take you through all things food and psychology. And today we take a tiny sidestep to also include some sociology and politics as I break bread with my guests Molly Smith and Juno Mack. Molly and Juno are sex workers and activists who campaign for the safety and labour rights of sex workers. They are the authors of Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Worker Rights, which is out right now. And I was keen to speak to Molly and Juno because I think maybe now more than ever, there is a need for us to have really thoughtful conversations about difficult or contentious issues that aren't just about sound bites or picking sides. We need to be able to understand the nuance and complexities of people's arguments if we are really going to engage with them honestly. I think there is a bit of a habit for people to want to turn a blind eye to issues or aspects of society that they find strange or frightening or just undesirable. And sex workers definitely fall into this category. I think most people would just like to pretend that they don't exist, which is really ironic because sex workers play a surprisingly central role in political life. Journalists go to sex workers. Politicians go to sex workers. Lawyers and judges go to sex workers. Yet the reality of their work and their basic rights to safety are often ignored, if not completely denied. And this is what Juno and Molly describe in their book. Now, they're not saying that sex work is great. They're not advocating that it should be included on the national curriculum or suggested by careers advisors. What they are saying is that it exists and that it is inherently dangerous work that is made more dangerous to the point of being deadly by the legal system that surrounds it. And they're asking the people, society and the government, recognise their basic human right to safety, whilst at the same time we work towards a society where prostitution isn't necessary as a means of survival for the most vulnerable people at the very fringes of society. I think this is an important discussion and I'm very grateful that they made the time to talk to me. Here is my conversation with Molly Smith and Juno Mack. So usually the Food and Psych podcast starts with us sharing my guest's favourite but meaningful food. I usually have two guests today. We think as one. (laughs) (laughs) So if if we were sharing meaningful food, what would it be? 
Well, I mean, we actually have the same favourite food, so it kind of it red, is like we think it's red a, pasta. It's red pasta, or what she calls red pasta, which I never, I never would have called it that in the past, but I now call it red pasta. It's just um, pasta in any kind of red sauce. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I have a really fond memory of us eating red pasta during the book writing process when we were in that. Um, we because we live in different cities when we were writing the book, we did a bunch of like long weekends together like in just like a rural airbnb or whatever mm-hmm. um so yeah so that we could like focus on like actual book stuff and I, it was the one in yorkshire wasn't it and mm-hmm. it was we um normally we were with a bunch of other people who would like who are quite foodie so like they would like cook stuff which for us which was obviously lovely but on this occasion we were only with one other person and she wasn't that foodie and um i think so we we had this like very chill dinner of um, eating red pasta and sort of semi ignoring each other with like our phones out and it was just so chill and great and peaceful yeah I, it's such a good memory <laughs> it's such a comfort food for me pasta with like any like very simple sauce like nothing it's like you know it's like normal humble everyday food. Um, which was more conducive to concentrating on the matter at hand than I've, having some big ceremony. You also love beige food, like you love penne <laughs> with just cheddar. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, well, if we're going there, I do just like penne. I mean, I'll have pasta with nothing on it, I don't care. It's just it's just so, dry. Yeah. <laughs> I have been known. I, uh, it's just like, it's what I remember liking as a kid, so I do revert back to that when in times of stress, and writing the book was definitely an extended of... period of stress. How did the, actually, how did you meet, and how did the book come about? Uh, we met on Twitter, I think. Yeah, back in like 2012, 2013. Okay. Yeah, but in person at a sex worker um, event, I think it was a film festival, it was part of a wider event in 2013. In Glasgow. Yeah, it's nice because we have a quite a specific set of dates of um, like we can pinpoint our like friendship anniversary. Um. <laughs> it's funny actually. The first like the first time I remember really bonding was in the queue um, for food in a canteen while we were having a discussion about politics, and she said something very profound that really stayed with me. And I remember immediately after the profound comment was made, which was about capitalism. <laughs> Um, we were eating gnocchi, so yeah, right. more beige, stodgy foods. <laughs> more like, Italian, yeah, it's just very bonding over carbs. Yeah, yeah. Something very simple Italian carbs. Yeah. I have a memory of us bonding when we were going around like a mini Tesco's, getting beer for like part of the events. And I remember specifically you telling me your actual name rather than your work name, which was the name you'd been using during the event mostly, mm. and that like obviously like that felt like a very like significant moment of like trust. Yes, it is a, a very, you know, important ritual between sex worker friends mm-hmm. when you exchange real names. Yes. Okay, so tell me about that. So, so typically, but typically sex workers will use... Well, I think when people are new to organising, they come into spaces and they're really not sure what to expect. So people are like often quite like anxious or mistrustful like kind of rightly so because like obviously once you've used your full legal name somewhere that's like a bell you can't really unring Mm -hmm. um so yeah people often will just use their work names initially and then if they kind of settle in and decide that they want to be part of the space in a more long-term way often they'll switch either to using their passport name or to using like an activist name so like we're both using activist names like our pen names are activist names um 
It gets very confusing. Yeah. Mm. All kinds of names. Um, but to share your actual name is something people, you know, tend, it's, it's a position of trust mm-hmm. um, in a climate where being a sex worker is stigmatised and, you know, criminalised. It's not, like, wise to broadcast your actual legal name to everybody. Mm-hmm. So that was a sign I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe that's a useful point. I mean, there's so much though uh, we might be here a long time <laughs> there's so much I want to talk about um that I you know underlined in the book and I've got so many turned down pages and but I found so even as someone who has worked with sex workers that there was lots about the legal framework and I suppose the kind of day-to-day experience that was out of my kind of remit of knowledge so without kind of getting you guys to give us a free lecture, <laughs> I thought it would be useful to kind of, what are the terms used? Is it sex worker, prostitute, other? And what are the kind of associations with those words? Well, I only call myself the other in academic contexts. <laughs> um, but such a bad joke. <laughs> um, other. <laughs> That's my job role. Um, no, I, I, we don't mind prostitute. Um, it's, it's quite contentious. You know, some people find the prostitute... The prostitute word. Uh, they call <laughs> the it the P some word. Some people call it the P word. They oh, really, really don't like it. I do... I feel like um, it's... In, it's a bit of a privilege in the in the UK to admit that you're a prostitute in public is not to necessarily admit you're breaking the law because to be a prostitute is not illegal here in the way that it is in say South Africa or the US. So to a certain extent, it's a luxury to be able to reclaim that. Um, and also, you know, we have like certain types of privilege that maybe also make that easier. You know, like maybe we can push back against the stigma by using that term. But at the same time it is good to try and reclaim words and not let them become too loaded, I think. Uh, yeah, I definitely feel like I have been on a bit of a like, journey with the word prostitute in the time that I've been in activism, because when I first came into like sex worker activism, I absolutely hated it. Um, Same. Yes. And How just, long ago was that? 2012-ish. Um, and why did you hate it? Because it's so stigmatising. I mean, it is still stigmatising. That's like what makes it kind of worthwhile to reclaim as Juno says mm-hmm. like it, it's only it's only it only makes sense to reclaim a word that has that like kick mm-hmm. um, I feel like you know for me I also went on a journey with it and it's like the word bitch and it's all about the intent mm-hmm. because a friend could call me bitch with like the utmost love and I could describe myself as a bitch in a way that just feels nothing but you know Mm-hmm. I, I, and some, there are some feminists who actually loathe the idea of reclaiming the term bitch and it's really like nothing but negative and certainly if a man on the street was to call me a bitch with a bad taste in his mouth that would hurt so yeah. much yeah absolutely and the word prostitute definitely still has the power to hurt mm. me but when someone uses it um, you know if I was being interviewed by a journalist and he was like so what's the situation like for prostitutes now if there was no malice mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. intent I'm not going to give any spare energy to thinking, oh, that's just a nasty word and it's always going to be nasty. It's all, I, I, nowadays I always look for like, what does a person really mean by that? Mm, yeah. Because um, life's too short to get too upset about things that there's so much more stuff to be upset about. And, you know, someone can call us a sex worker, but still have like a sneer. A sneer. Yeah. And that to me is so much worse. Yeah. So. yeah. And, but, you know, we, we are prostitutes. Yes. Like, there's, it is the only word sometimes that encapsulates exactly what we're trying to talk about which is 
literally having sex with someone for money, not porn and not cam work. not chemical, not phone sex. Sometimes you just need a word that yeah. describes the thing. Yeah. Sex worker is a political term which was coined as a way to bring everybody together uh, by an American activist, Carol Lee, who wanted everyone to be able to um, cluster under this umbrella term um, in a way that protected prostitutes from ex- the exposure of criminalization. And to that extent, the term sex worker is great because it means that a, a, sex, a prostitute could stand side by side with a porn performer and they're both sex workers and neither has to say, well, which kind. Yeah. Which is great. And so we use sex worker. I, I identify myself as a sex worker all the time as well. Yeah, right. It's a really politically useful term. And like, I'm really like glad that, for example, like UN agencies or the World Health Organization, like increasingly use the term, like the term sex worker. I'd um, usually rather it was used by other people to describe me. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a place to reclaim prostitute. And I hope that the title of the book kind of um, tri- signifies to people that we're about taking that back for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I am so not here for any arguments you know people have done this with all kinds of reclaimed terms where they sort of like pretend that they don't understand the difference between reclaiming it and using it to as a slur mm-hmm. but people know that by now they know and any other argument is total um, bullshit yeah can we say that you can say whatever you think. Like. Like. Okay. <laughs> it's like the beep I'll, I'll, I'll just have to tick the box that says explicit <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that was definitely going to happen <laughs> So you mentioned uh, feminism, and in the book, you talk about different types of feminism in relation to sex work, and how, what their attitudes are to sex work. And I think it'd be really useful if you could you give like a whistle stop tour of mm. of that. You go. Okay. <laughs> Deep breaths. So um, I guess there are two kinds of feminism that we're critical of in the book: um, carceral feminism and liberal feminism. Um, Castoral feminism is a feminism that is very invested in the kind of punitive functions of the state in terms of achieving the supposed goals of gender justice or feminist liberation. Um, So it's a feminism that thinks that policing and and prisons and other kinds of punitive carceral modes of state power can be um yeah can be useful or can even like be key can be central in the fight for um feminism and then the other feminism that we're critical of is liberal feminism which um obviously is a feminism that is very uncritical of capitalism um and kind of refuses to see um the power differentials that are inherent in capitalism Mm -hmm. um and it's important to state that like you know to us there is a certain kind of feminist rhetoric that is very liberal. Um, but sex worker rights also is accused of being uh, a politics of liberalism too by its critics. And we, in the book, show that we don't disagree. Like, you know, call out liberalism where you see it. It's not unique to our um, critics, you know, whereas carceral feminism is... You know, there are, there are no... I think there's a very... I think there's, you could make an argument that there's a kind of carceral sex worker rights perspective, which is very, like, something something that's really emphatic about, like, trafficking uh, is 
real and should be dealt with by increased policing, but it just shouldn't apply to me. Like, mm. I'm, I'm the sex worker who chooses it. All those other sex workers, their lives will be improved by aggressive police intervention. Mm. Um, it's possible, of course, to be both. Like, you know, if you think of some horrible, carceral, liberal feminists yes. who are misdescribing themselves as radical feminists... Um, and, you know, all of these terms are annoyingly open to interpretation, but, like, we luckily happen to agree on what we consider to be radical, and it's not a, a fusion of carceral or liberal yes. approaches. Yeah, so I guess, yeah. That's so, handy. <laughs> right. Carceral feminism is pro-the-police, liberal feminism is pro-capitalism. Good sex worker feminism should be both against capitalism and the police. Yeah. In a nutshell. <laughs> I'm a, a big nut. <laughs> it's a huge nut. <laughs> and so why did you want to write the book? Where did the book come from? Because you could otherwise just quietly... Have a quiet life. <laughs> um, I feel like the, the debate, the prostitution debate, is so characterised by two quote-unquote sides. Um, and I say quote-unquote because it shouldn't be two sides. Mm. Like, it should be, um, you know, in an ideal world... Not an ideal world where there would be no gender-based violence, but, like, a better world would see feminists all agreeing on the fact that they all agree on at least where we're headed Mm -hmm. and, like, working together. Whereas the sex industry debate is framed with these two sides, prostitutes versus, or, or, you know, pimp lobbyists versus radical feminists. And I feel like the book aims to have a slightly more productive, Mm -hmm. um, not middle ground, but a dialectical discussion where we sort of identify what points radical feminists um are making that like is fair like we, you know we don't think that the sex industry should just be allowed to continue in its current um form um and we don't take the view that some sex workers take um all the time and we want to be critical of that and we didn't feel like there was any existing work mm-hmm. around that yeah too yeah too often like um sex workers I guess for like really understandable reasons as well, like because people are being backed into the corner, sex work politics ends up coming out almost as a defence of the sex industry mm. in its current mm-hmm. form. Mm. And it's yeah, it's really important to be like actually the sex industry is like a site of terrible violence and exploitation and misogyny and racism and capitalist harm of various mm. kinds. Um, and all that is real. We just don't think that you solve it by increasing the power of the police. And it's a real luxury to be able to have enough space to to make those arguments in like a complex and nuanced way. You know, most sex workers don't have a platform like mm. a book. They've got a Twitter account. And so it's not surprising to hear them tweet stuff like, well, I know, I bloody love this. Just leave me alone. Mm. Sex workers are actually helping the planet and like we're a force for good in the world. Like that is the type of thing people say when they're backed into a corner by a world that hates them. So, you know, we're not, we don't try and apportion blame to mm. them for that stuff. And at the same time, the book also tries to mount proper critique of um, the policies that oppress us. Um, again, not from like a backed into a corner way, but in a sort of, you know, a thoroughgoing... And a very academic way, I felt, as a kind of reader. I was like, oh my footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I think also, I, I wonder if that was to, like... I think as sex workers writing a book, there's like the expectation that it will be like a kind of sexy tell-all, which is fine mm. if that's what you're setting out to do. Um, but our activism in general has not been about that kind of approach. And I think part of the way in which we we had it very like quite academic was was a like a strong mm. try, like a strong pushback on the idea that we're like 
fluffy or unserious like i mean this is this is all like kind of sexist right like people are people love to be like oh you know prostitutes they all just love shoes they love shopping they they, they the only thing they can write is like fluffy um memoirs and that like even by kind of pushing back on that in a way we're like um i worry that we're like uh, in a way, like agreeing with that and just being like, well, we're not doing that. That like that's why we put the footnotes in the back. Right. I mean, in the references. <laughs> See, I, I'm not sure. I mean, so whenever you might hear about sex workers like, as a non-sex worker, there's either the TV soundbite when something is going on, mm-hmm. or the kind of there are kind of two, maybe three stories. I think so. One is of the kind of, she can't make good decisions for herself. She's, you know, incapable of of seeing that this is bad for her. Mm. Um, The kind of in need of rescue uh, damsel in distress. Um, Or the kind of scarlet woman who's just out to steal people's men and destroy the fabric of society Mm. um, and destroy families. And... Um, and something, of course, that you, you talk a lot about in the book, which is about the kind of the vector of disease and, you know, the kind of, and it was really interesting and I don't know why it didn't occur to me that, you know, that puta, the Italian and Spanish word for prostitute shares its roots with the word putrid. And I think... And with putanesca, the red spaghetti. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think as well as a kind of dismissal of sex worker bodies there's a real dismissal of sex worker minds like you clearly can't think for yourselves you don't know what you're doing you need someone else to look after you and tell you right from wrong and what came across in the book was certainly it felt like you were making a clear statement about your capacity to think and critique and and look at this from a kind of rational perspective yeah i mean something we touched on in the book is this idea of rationality because um you know I don't want people to come away from the book thinking, now these two are mu- much more rational than your average because... They're the good ones. Yes, yeah, the good ones. Because I just think the, pro- the big problem that we have in society about poverty, about working class people, about people who use drugs, um, about people who uh, sleep on the streets, is that no one considers that everybody is is capable of acting rationally and thinking rationally about what's best for them and about their own lives. People just disagree with other people's um, rational thoughts. And, you know, like, to use drugs if you sleep on the streets is a rational mm-hmm. response to your situation. To sell sex to get money for expensive criminalised drugs is a rational response. Um, it's it's really harmful to sort of imagine that, uh, that people who live in the kind of, like, murky underworld, like prostitutes, like drug users and homeless people are fundamentally chaotic and irrational and don't know what's best for them is quite a convenient untruth to account for the fact that you just don't understand their lives and you don't have had their experiences. Right, and also that, like, when you are, like, lacking in loads of different things, whether that's, like, you know, because you're homeless or because you, like, need to get money to, like, pay for, like, expensive drugs or whatever, like, you have way fewer options and then the decisions that you make from those series of fewer options, like, mean that you're, like, pathologised and or, like, criminalised. Um... Yeah, and, like, the way to help people make quote-unquote best decisions themselves would be to give them the resources, like, more resources mm-hmm. rather than, um, yeah, like, in- impose these frames of, like, pathologization or criminalization mm-hmm. on them. So, like, yeah, with sex work, it's so clear, like, 
um, when people talk about like the link between say the number of people in sex work who um, like experience some kind of abuse or neglect as kids generally the argument is like oh those people don't know what's best for them they're acting out like various kinds of trauma they're deliberately harming themselves and like one of the arguments that we make in the book is like lots of people will have some kind of family support to fall back on if Mm -hmm. they you know are if they lose a job or end a relationship you know in in a in a shitty context and like and for people who experienced harm when they were children whether you know whether they were put into the care system or whether they had like parents that were shits them in various ways Mm -hmm. they either can't or won't like fall back on that kind of family support and like they will you know potentially do absolutely everything Mm -hmm. to avoid going home to like parents who harmed them um and like that's that's the like the link Mm -hmm. the link is real but it's to do with people's like lack of access to material support Mm -hmm. it's to do with the fact that like everyone is you know three paychecks away from homelessness or one bad relationship ending away from homelessness Mm -hmm. you know um and and that people who lack family support are like even closer to that line mm. than everybody else. It's not because um, people are like people's experiences in, make them fundamentally like less able to make good decisions for themselves. Because that leads to a really like scary place with you know masculine laundries etc. Not um, yeah, it doesn't lead to any kind of like feminist politics. Yeah, and I think and you said that. Part of the problem generally was, was that people don't understand other people's experiences, but I, I I don't even think it's even that. I think there's a fundamental problem, what well, you know, with sex. Like we just can't really cope. It's the, it's the strangeness of sex. It's also the strangeness of uh, drug use. The strangeness of ch- the strangeness of child abuse makes people create myths about survivors. You know, like to to have experienced child abuse um which you know child abuse is present in my family and it makes people so uncomfortable um and the outlet for that is to imagine myths about like what people who've gone through that must eventually be like in their decision making um or their or their sanity and sex does the same thing to people Mm -hmm. and even more so when child abuse and sex um collide um to be high on drugs is strange and unnerving in our society and people make myths about that mental illness is strange like we, we we have really bad attitudes not only to sex but to all kinds of strangeness and you know it's it really really sucks to be a person for whom these identities like coalesce in multiple ways if you exist at the intersection of mental illness and homelessness and uh surviving child abuse and doing sex work then you are rendered strange and then strange on top of that and strange on top of that um so it's not just about not understanding people's experiences. It's about just imagining completely new experiences that maybe mm-hmm. they haven't had. Or, um, and the problem is that the, 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 the fallout or the consequences of our societal attitudes about this stuff render people quieter and quieter and quieter in the public imagining. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are some people out there who will have never in their life had so much as an exchange of words with a homeless person. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of person that will have even more myths in their mind Mm -hmm. that are like, like they'll construct all kinds of fantasies about why people are on the streets. It's the kind of person that would say they choose to be out there or they put it on themselves. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of other people who know that that's not true. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's a reason, there's a reason for that misinformation. 
what do you think are the if there are any kind of ones that show up regularly the kind of misconceptions or maybe even maybe fantasies is almost the appropriate word of of sex work like what do you get anxious about if someone if you were to kind of introduce yourself as a sex worker that they might think about you maybe that you're a person who ultimately doesn't uh want to I, I think one of the most pernicious ones is that you are on a path of self-destruction that you don't know what's best for yourself or maybe you do and you don't care um and that you um want to enact destruction not only on yourself but on society and maybe, maybe that's like much more um meta or much more deep than people would give voice to mm-hmm. but as we talk about in the book the sort of history of um, myth making about the prostitute says that she not only is going to harm herself but she's also out to corrupt other people and she's dangerous she will like corrupt men because lust obviously as you said we're very weird about sex and she will use sex as the weapon that will kind of like drag people into um, you know disaster yeah. and like that manifested I mean in the modern era I don't think anyone would sort of say something like that but that that is what underpins people modern assumptions about sex workers yeah you include that quote from mum's net though which pretty much says exactly that yeah right so that was and there's so much i mean mum's net is such a rich text for the way in which people's sympathy for sex workers is a very 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 thin veneer that covers a like a roiling morass of disgust and hatred <laughs> like maggoty <laughs> <laughs> oh no. my god Mom's net and also like columns written by people like richard littlejohn or piers morgan mm-hmm. because well i found like an early um notepad that we were using when we were jotting down ideas for the book when it first started and on one piece of paper was just written like richard littlejohn is the pox that shows our society is ill and I was like wow yeah we didn't that ended up, didn't end up going in the book but it's because he says the ugly ugly I don't know if you remember him a Daily Mail columnist he um, about 10 years ago after the Ipswich um, killings of five sex workers in Ipswich he wrote basically the most abhorrent things like that they were just worthless junkies that they bought it on themselves that their deaths kind of cleaned up the mess and that we shouldn't miss them or feel bad now that's gross and he was like completely lambasted in the press for it was he giving voice to the stuff that lots of people mm. secretly think yeah he was and mum's net also is a place where people can be like Bleh. Oh, okay i've said it now i've said yeah. what we were all thinking in a sense mum's net is more interesting to me than little john because little john's role is just to be a misogynist like no one and no a one provocateur thinks, yeah whereas like on mum's net they know that they are supposed to come at this from like a quote-unquote feminist angle mm-hmm. um and so yeah there's this like very like interesting interplay of like switching between ostensible sympathy slash pity mm-hmm. um which yeah, which which very um, rapidly flickers back and forth between that and anger and disgust. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and terror. Yeah. I think there's a kind of real fear of these, like, well, shadowy figures that are going to mm. come out from the night and, and steal your men. I was thinking recently that I actually also really empathise with this. Like, you know, we live in a patriarchal society where women are taught that, you know, we should place a lot of value on our relationships with men. Yeah. and Because for survival. Right, yeah. exactly. And also there's like a, a, an economic reason to why, you know, like... People don't want their men stolen. Yes. And that's... And like, ultimately, like, the prostitute revolution should involve... Wives. Tearing down, like, patriarchy so that 
people don't have to be so scared about about the breakup of their relationships because that's what they're scared of and like they're in a way right to be scared of that like because and you, you know, know also love but, 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 but that can, that can still, <laughs> there is place for love in the prostitute revolution yes it's just very yeah very sidelined yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah I guess I, I was kind of thinking about it the other day and I just was like you know I, I, I sort of empathise with where this fear comes from mm-hmm. there's yeah there's an amazing thread on Mums Net, Mums Net where they're talking about um how to find out whether your partner is um, using a escort directory websites and loads and loads of them go and like put in their partner's email address and it comes up and says oh yeah this person does have an account here and it's sort of it's sort of um I mean I shouldn't even say this I don't know like I feel like I feel sympathy with Mm -hmm. them because that they're unhappy about it I Um, think if you're at the point where you have no empathy with other commentators in the debate that disagree with you you should probably not be engaging politically like I feel like I will I feel like I can die happy knowing that we wrote a book that at least attempted to really see what it is that our detractors are trying to say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not misconstrue them and not put words in their mouth which is all I ever see from uh, feminist critics of sex worker rights because they know that if they were to think for five minutes about what they would do if they were facing destitution and they had nobody to ask or their kids were literally crying because they had no food in the house. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that they know that they would also make some of the same decisions and maybe they feel horrible about that and maybe they don't want to think about mm-hmm. it. But I feel good. Right, and maybe least... they want to fight for a world where no one is facing destitution and that's great, like, sex workers will join them in that fight but you're not going to achieve that by being like, oh yeah, we should give more power to the police and to the immigration mm-hmm. police. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, not to not to draw inappropriate parallels between different kinds of oppressions, um, but it reminds me of this conversation I was just having with someone earlier this morning about the fact that I don't I don't particularly like the idea that we breed pets in our society to, you know, to live amongst us. Um, I don't feel like people should necessarily buy their pets from breeders. Do I want no one to adopt pets from shelters? Do I want everyone to sort of say they all have to be... All the pets in the shelter should just be incinerated because I don't want to live in a world where pets exist is a completely, mm-hmm. like, backwards way to come into that liberation, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the, the liberation has to happen whilst making space for everybody who already exists in the world that we already live in. And we, you know, to abolish the sex industry you know, can't happen so quickly that the people who still depend on it to survive aren't, yeah, are just cannon fodder, um, which I think is the version of events that really appeals to some Mm. feminists and they conveniently don't survive on what the sex industry offers them. And a lot, you know, a lot of the most prominent critics of the sex industry don't even have relationships with men in general. You know, like, you know, a lot of the prominent theorists from the 80s were lesbian separatists which in a way I mean I sort of um, I think that's much more consistent than like being yeah. um, a radical feminist like, no wonder they can't identify with needing men like you know as a financial life float um, and I too wish that we lived in a world where that wasn't people's only option mm-hmm. but like we're harm reductionists and realists mm-hmm. and, well, communists. and communists because <laughs> I think that the realism is the kind of main foundation right because I think there's one thing which is about wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where people didn't have to sell sex in order to survive um where there is enough protection in society that if somebody fell on difficult times they would be there would be a safety net for them yes 
that would be lovely Mm -hmm. but the reality is that that's not where we are and I think what happens with the conversation is that people say well the problem is prostitution so we need to get rid of prostitution when well I mean there are two problems out there one is that's not the problem the problem is you know an unequal society where people end up absolutely on the brink Mm -hmm. and the other is that people will still have sex. Like, I think there's a kind of wish in the air that if there are no prostitutes, then there will be no more, I don't know, extramarital or whatever mm. sex. And I think that's one of the difficulties that we have, which is actually people will have sex and they will find ways to have sex. Yeah, I mean, the problem in all kinds of activist spaces, including the ones that we're in, I should add, is that people are very quick to start talking about like, the end game or pie in the sky ideals about what would happen in an ideal world. And like discussions about utopia take up so much space away from talking about how to change things as they are now. That's what gets uh, accusations of liberalism thrown at us because we're saying, well, hang on, instead of trying to like completely upend the universe, why don't we look to save the lives of sex workers who are out in a forest in France tonight and they're hiding from the police Um, And they're hiding their clients from the police. Like, what do we do about those people? People think that that's us being liberal because Mm -hmm. we're saying, let's not abolish the sex industry, let's save lives at the local level. And, you know, maybe there is something... I'm okay with that amount of liberalism because... I I, I mean, I I agree with you, obviously, but I don't don't agree that it's, like, liberal. No, I don't either. And I... Even when you said, like, realist earlier, I sort of don't like the word realist either because I think that really underplays how radical it is to come into... a politics where you explicitly like foreground prostitutes safety Mm -hmm. as like incredibly important like that is so radical and obviously like when you when it's radical when you value sex workers lives i mean obviously some people can't and won't make that the center of their politics yeah but obviously that's callous yeah maybe sorry go on um maybe that's a good because you just mentioned um France and the, the model mm-hmm. in France, and uh, well, touched on it, to talk about the different kind of models of criminalisation, decriminalisation, and legalisation of sex work. Obviously, from, like worst to best. <laughs> from worst to best. Okay, so worst is full criminalisation, which they have in the US, they have it in Russia, they have it in Kenya, they have it in South Africa. Most of the world has full criminalisation, I think it would be fair to say. Um, and that's where it's illegal to buy and to sell. Yes, and to do everything else around it. So to organise the prostitution of someone else, um, to often to do like to be a, a driver or a cleaner for a sex worker. Um, often like even if it's not even if money isn't necessarily involved, so like to be a to, to co-work, to mm-hmm. be someone's safe call, um, all of that is criminalised, but also crucially, selling sex is criminalised, buying sex is criminalised. Um and in general, in countries where they have that legal model, um, although the purchase of sex is technically illegal, um, sex workers themselves are disproportionately um, targeted by law enforcement um, through stings, and obviously the most marginalised, like more marginalised sex workers are targeted disproportionately within that. So if you work outdoors, if you're a sex worker of colour, if you're a migrant, particularly an undocumented migrant, if you're a visible drug user, mm-hmm. Um, all of those people are, you know, everything is compounded for them and they're more and more likely to end up um, sexually assaulted by police officers, uh, arrested, um, 
incarcerated. Because they have no rights. Yes, yes. So then you have various systems of partial criminalisation. Um, so the UK has partial criminalisation, um, or well, England, Scotland, Wales does. Uh, I never know exactly what how 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 you describe the UK in a way that excludes Northern Ireland. Anyway, it's really boring. Um, <laughs> Technical energy. <laughs> <laughs> so, in say the United Kingdom, the act of being a prostitute, the act of selling sex, is not in itself criminalised, um, but almost everything around it is. So. For sex workers on the street soliciting, so indicating that you'd be willing to sell sex, uh, is criminalised, as is curb crawling, so indicating that you'd be willing to purchase sex on the street, that's also criminalised. Um, and then indoors, it is legal to work if you are working alone. Um, if you are working with someone else, then that becomes a brothel, even if neither of you are making money out of the other, other person's presence. Um, it's legal to buy sex indoors yeah. as well, like clients aren't breaking the law yeah including when they go into a brothel yes <laughs> so the brothel's legal but the client isn't yeah. no no uh, uh, yeah the, way the brothel is criminalized in the uk but buying sex is legal as long as the the client is indoors and the sex worker cannot be you know isn't being forced or coerced i think that's what yeah. the law says it's really even even hearing a saying this now i'm like this is really complicated it's very patchwork ultimately the law in the uk is is as patchy as it is because it's kind of it reminds me of some of the water pipe systems mm-hmm. in london it's just very old and decayed and like bodged together and it's been like amended um during yeah new labor era in a really kind of like ham-fisted way that didn't really help anything yeah and the wolferson report that decriminalized homosexuality in what the late 50s um adding added criminalization to prostitution that was sort of the that was like a two-handed like sop to liberalism of like mm. or, or in a good way like decriminalizing homosexuality but then to like keep the um, forces of conservatism happy they're like well we'll, we'll criminalize prostitution some more yeah, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> sex good sex bad yeah so yeah so if you're working with a friend then that is criminalized like the two workers are both potentially criminalized although in practice um like probably the person whose name is on the tenancy would actually be prosecuted or like it depends on you know your immigration status etc like there's just like totally arbitrary and discretionary which is obviously then like really bad Mm -hmm. um but it puts sex workers at risk isn't it because quite often if you're working in twos, it's for safety. Yes. Yeah. No one's working in, in pairs because they want to make a fuss or create a bawdy house or, you know, make their whole street annoyed with them. <laughs> like, people just really know that there's safety in numbers. And, like, you know, uh, sex workers are not the only kinds of workers to identify that they'd be safer with a, a co-worker. Like, uh, when Susie Lamplew, the estate, estate agent, was killed um, in the 90s, um, estate agents, female estate agents were advised to go around together and not, not, you know, yeah. show how police like. officers walk around yes. too. Social yeah. workers. I think in the book we cite a bunch of like guidance from like all of Britain's major trade unions where they're like, yeah, like if you're a lone worker, that comes with various risks, and you should ask your employer to like mitigate those risks by like not having you be a lone worker. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and like sex workers are some of the most at-risk workers in the entire world. Um, and they are workers who are well known by perpetrators to often not be able to call the police. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really we should be the ones who are allowed to work in groups of 50. <laughs> um, 
it's yeah obviously it's outrageous and it's a law that's not fit for purpose and we a lot of sex worker activism in the uk just tries very very hard to constantly make it clear that that is no no bloody good yeah yeah <laughs> so no good. um i'm conscious that we're getting off the track which we're supposed mm-hmm. to be going very quickly through the legal models <laughs> um so then there is legalization which they have in some counties in nevada um and in the netherlands and germany which is where some very specific forms of sex work are legal. So, like, in Nevada, I think there's something like 16 brothels, like, in the, you know, in the whole mm. state that are legal. And regulated. Very, and licensed. it's always, like, very heavily regulated in a way that, like, is very stigmatising. Um, so, like, in Amsterdam, you can, like, work if you're, like, in very specific areas of the mm-hmm. city. Uh, and, like in, like, in Germany, loads... Germany's a federal system so like it's different in all different bits of Germany okay. it doesn't really make sense to talk about a German model and like the police will try and lure sex workers out of the areas where it's legal to work into areas where it's illegal to work so that they can then arrest them um, so basically legalisation still entails loads of criminalisation it, it means that a very small number of workers are able to work legally but that is by definition the workers who like are able to jump through those legal hoops so the workers who are documented um who are not like visibly using drugs who are like working indoors mm-hmm. um and even within that it's like a tiny proportion even of those workers and it gives bosses loads of power because it's you can't like leave your legal place of employment because you have nowhere else you can legally work mm-hmm. um oh and then for a huge proportion of like all other sex workers so everyone who's working outdoors everyone who can't get a job in a legal brothel because you know like they're trans or they're using drugs or whatever uh, or they're undocumented migrants they're still having to work illegally and they're still subject to all the harms of full criminalization um so it's bad <laughs> that's the thing about legalization i mean all the systems we've described so far are bad yeah it's a confusing name legalization because yeah. ultimately it just kind of scoops some people into mm-hmm. a legal framework and the rest partial legalization yeah it's based yeah it's no good yeah and we are often it's often confused with decriminalization which is the legal model that we advocate for because understandably the names kind of sound like they might refer to the same thing so we're trying to we're trying to kickstart a new thing we're trying to call it regulationism instead which hopefully clears up a time we're trying to make it happen fetch and regulationism (laughs) Uh, and decriminalization kind of instead of adding in extra laws to control sex work um, instead treat sex work like other forms of labour and regulate it through existing labour law mm-hmm. um, which for us helps people understand that it's work rather than some extra special frightening thing that in society we need to kind of like keep mm-hmm. tightly hold of. I think regulationism kind of teaches people that sex workers are volatile mm-hmm. and scary. Like I had a, a client recently who was saying how he'd seen all kinds of escorts all across Australia and he'd, he thinks that the forced health check system is really good because, you know, they all need forced health checks. And I said, well, do you get forced to do health checks in Australia? I knew the answer. <laughs> Reader, I knew the answer. That was a trick question. He was like, <laughs> he was like no. And I was like, but it sounds like you're having a lot of sex with a lot of different lot sex of workers. Um, but he, like a lot of people in those kinds of countries, probably thinks that actually sex workers are the people who need to be forced to go to the clinic because they're dirty and unruly and, again, out to destruct themselves and everyone around them. Clients, however, are not seen through that same lens, which is 
uh, right. weird. But we don't I mean, anyone should be forced right, to have a health check. The right. danger of making this argument is that it seems like you're like, well, wouldn't it be good if clients as well had forced no, health no, checks? No, no, no one should have any forced health checks because it's a human rights violation. Yeah, but he, he saw that. As soon as I suggested, like, are you forced to go to yes. the health check? The idea of the forced health check suddenly revealed itself to him mm. as unfair. Mm. And I think everybody, you know, if, if, if someone found out that they had to submit themselves for a gynecological exam before they were allowed to uh, go on holiday to New York, they would recognise it to be unfair. Like, it, sex workers will access healthcare if it's freely available to them and it's non-stigmatising. No one needs to force them to go. Yeah. And, to in, and to imply that they do need to be forced to go just sends out a really weird message about, you know... Well, again, it's the idea that they don't know what's good for them, Mm -hmm. and it has really um, harmful actual like material effects. So, like if you suspect that you do have a sexually transmitted infection, it means that you then avoid actively avoid health services because rather than being treated privately and non-judgmentally and with respect, like potentially presenting at this health service and being like, "Yes, I'm a sex worker and I've got chlamydia and I want to keep working," um, means that you'll be criminalised for that. so like you have a like and obviously no one wants to be criminalized no one wants to be told like you have to stop work for this like long period of time or whatever because how are they going to survive so um yeah like so people it pushes people to avoid health services um yeah it's bad news i think one one male escort was outed in the press in australia as having hiv um he hadn't transmitted it to anybody had he? No. Um, he, his, he, he just was outed and shamed and it prompted a massive drop in the amount of people showing up to health checks because no one wanted to take what that risk. What did that happen to them? What was the rationale for outing someone? Um, just to highlight the pure evil of a sex worker who would see clients whilst HIV positive, even though with safe sex there's you know no almost no and it was like because that, that wouldn't happen to like if if i had hiv like yeah. no one would be able to put i mean it's, it's classic like it was like a throwback from you know the eight like the late 80s or something it's just like classic like hiv panic that makes people do terrible things mm. um yeah and then the person makes... the person with uh, hiv positive status becomes not just a person you know, with a health diagnosis, but a person who wants destruction mm-hmm. for people around them. Like kind of, yeah, there's a lot of parallels between the um, figure of the HIV positive uh, person and the sex worker, mm-hmm. because instead of being seen as like people who may just be normal folks with like an extra need for care taken around them in society or to have their needs listened to, they are they instead become like agents of destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's doubly true for an HIV positive sex worker. Right, and obviously that also like plays out in really strikingly like homophobic and transphobic and racist ways. Like the um, history of the law around HIV criminalisation is something that I'm like, in a way, slightly sad that we didn't get to go into more in the book, even though the book is about a third longer than Verso originally wanted. <laughs> so that's why. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, does that include the section where you talk about what happened in Sweden in the nineties? Um, yes. Yeah, right. So we actually haven't talked yet about the Nordic model, which is like the final legal model, (laughs) which is the the most, in some ways, the most juicy one, because it's the one around which so much like feminist discourse swirls and coalesces, you know, Um, and truthfully, the Swedish model is kind of, is a not too distant cousin of the partial criminalization that we already just mentioned. Yes. Um, But it functions slightly differently in this feminist discourse because it is 
rolled out as something new, something progressive, something that's going to change things for the better. And actually, it's the same old horseshit. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's the same. It's the same old, same old. It's the it's the conservative anti-sex work approach, but much more dangerous because it's presented as something um, that right progressives should get behind. What yeah. is it? So it's um, ostensibly decriminalizes the person who sells sex, although that's something that we should return to in a second problematize mm-hmm. um and it ostensibly places the burden of criminal responsibility onto the client uh and onto the manager or person who organizes sex work um and the idea is that those two people are people who are like making a real choice to engage in commercial sex and or profiting from it and so if you target them then they will cease to respectively buy sex or organize prostitution uh, and as a result, the sex industry will um, decrease in size and fewer women will be exploited in it. Um, yeah. What actually so happens... So good. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. And they just go out to work on the street and when there are no clients around, they just think, oh, and then they go back indoors and then they suddenly don't need the money that they wanted <laughs> to go out for that night. They find a new job and all is well. It's basically, I guess, how they think that would work. Yes. Um, it, come, like, it comes from a very like empathisable with place of seeing the clients as like a kind of avatar of patriarchy and all the harms that are done to women under patriarchy and that is totally real and true um and you know in many ways you know the person who the man who chooses to pay for sex does embody so many you know he embodies patriarchy he embodies kind of economic power um he embodies you know the power of like white supremacy and colonialism like that's that's all true but like as i as i keep coming back to you don't really tackle that very effectively by giving the police more power and when you criminalize the clients that pushes sex workers to um try and protect the client yes because that's they need the transaction so they protect they protect their their income by protecting the client and protecting the client looks like keeping him away from the police which might look like working in a more remote location um, taking risks and if the client identifies that the sex worker is doing that that puts him actually in a position of power which is the paradox of criminalizing the client because ultimately he could go home and not buy sex the sex worker needs the transaction more than he does. So that creates this, there is some asymmetry in the model, but it's not the asymmetry the feminists imagined. It's the fact that the sex worker is going to compromise what they need and want in order to try to still give the client what he wants, which is obviously safety, discretion, probably cheaper rates, probably unprotected sex. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line is that the sex worker needs to eat. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. Um, if you look at a uh, like supply and demand graph, like and proponents of this model like often make a really big deal about like the idea that it's based in like simple economics. If demand goes down, then supply will also go down. Um, like if you look at a graph where that's happening, like you, like what that means is that prices go down. So like where sex workers are making less money, that means that they're pushed to lower their prices. You know, if you if you would normally expect to see three or four clients by midnight, mm-hmm. and you've not seen anyone, and then at one one in the morning, someone approaches you and like he seems drunk or he seems aggressive, and like if you already had money in your pocket, you would turn him down. Um, and then he's like, well, you know, you want to charge me ninety, but I've only got thirty five on me, like how about it anyway mm-hmm. you know normally you might be like no actually like i'm not gonna like 60 is my absolute lowest i'll not negotiate below but like if if it's like that get 35 pounds off him or go home with nothing then mm-hmm. you know then you're like all these all these like so many different things about this legal model compound to reduce your power to refuse a client who is aggressive um who's negotiating you down on your rates who's negotiating you down on condom use um, and this this happens to other workers in other industries. Like I've got friends who are freelance uh, writers, and when work's really thin on the ground, they let editors take them for a ride. Like you yeah. know, they have to chase up invoices, stretching on and on and on. But they don't want to fuck off those editors because maybe on the next go round they really need them. Mm-hmm. And so everybody sh- can identify with what it's like to put up with more crap than you're willing to take when you don't have the luxury of being like, you know what, I've got other money coming in, so I don't need this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Swedish model, even if it worked exactly the way people want it to work, like feminist campaigners who brought it in in Sweden, mm-hmm. the only way it can be successful is by making sex workers poorer. It literally aims to stop that flow of money coming in as the first step on the way to getting rid of the sex industry. Was that the one, there was a quote in there that said, like, we don't want to make it safe for sex workers. Was that the Swedish? Model? That was when they were bringing it in in Canada and um, a Canadian politician said... Someone said, like, um, this this law makes life harder for sex workers. Uh, and he responded with something like, well, we don't want to make life safer for prostitutes. We want to do away with prostitution. And again, it's like that cannon fodder attitude. Mm. It's like the real... It doesn't matter about, you know, people in the here and now getting killed or hurt. We need to think of tomorrow, tomorrow's world. Um, There's an amazing quote, which I think is also in the book, from um, the head of anti-trafficking policy in Sweden, where she says, um, she's asked by a journalist, like, again, like, don't you think this law is harming people who sell sex? And she says, um, yes, of course, part of the law is it's harder to be a prostitute, but that's part of what we intended to happen with the law. Yeah, we don't want, it, we don't want anyone looking at... Um, you know, anything on the internet and thinking that it's safe now and that anyone can just do this. So, like, it's literally part of the philosophy of the Swedish model is make it dangerous and inhospitable to the vulnerable and they might stop doing it. So it's Which is also so interesting because, like, their whole argument, which in loads of ways is correct, is that people go into prostitution with almost no options, you know, few or no options. Mm. And, like, 
when you make the sex industry a harder place than it already is, and it's already extremely fucking hard, what happens is that the people with slightly more options do leave like may, and you know maybe they're not leaving into something amazing maybe they're you know but maybe you know maybe they're documented and so they can access the benefit system and mm-hmm. so they're going that's where they're going um you know or maybe they're going into work that's also like exploitative and badly paid it means they don't have time to spend with their kids but like you know they, they have that option but like the people who are most trapped in the sex industry who 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 are most stuck even when conditions become worse and worse are those with the absolute fewest options so people who are undocumented migrants who under no circumstances feel they can make themselves visible to any kind of state agency for fear of being deported including outreach services yeah you know which is intended to be the sticking plaster that kind of you know alleviate some of what we've just been describing you know like uh, if we had a supporter of the swedish model here in the room right now they'd probably say "Ah, ah-ah but there's going to be lots of money diverted to kind of like helping those people well like we break down the actual figures in the book devoted towards services like that in Norway and it's abysmal like it's not enough to replace the income that even even a sex worker on the street who does have to drop their prices who who has less clients than they've ever had before still making more money on the streets than they would be getting through these support and also like to say oh well there'll be services I understand where it comes from, but to me it feels like an acknowledgement that people are saying, oh yes, well we are making the sex industry harder and more mm. difficult and that has implications for your safety, but but on the other hand, there'll be, you know, there'll be cake over here. And it's like, or you could just give people the result, like if, if we all agree that like what people need is housing and, and childcare and well-played flexible work and the ability to like, a route to stable immigration status if that's what they want, you know, then why not just do that and not do the bit where you're making the sex industry more dangerous for people who, for whatever reason, are still in it. Yeah. It's a weird acknowledgement of the dehumanisation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, gonna make it really tough for you guys. Some of you might die, mm-hmm. but yeah, look at this lovely cake over If here. you know what's good for you, you'll, like, you'll change your ways. And it's like, it also comes from not asking people what they really need. You know, like, very little curiosity is shown about the actual lives of sex workers um, who and what they're spending their money on, what they need that money for. Um, I have said this in the past, like it's remarkable how little abolitionist anti-prostitution campaigners want to discuss drugs policy when drugs mm. criminalization, the price of drugs and the inadequacy of methadone mm. like is what a lot of why a lot of people are on the street because they need to be able to afford yeah. heroin. Yeah, if you had a system of free prescription heroin tonight or tomorrow, you know, overnight, it would free then... up a lot of your time and resources. You might you might only need to go and do one night on the street right. or maybe you would maybe you would be able to do something else because the need to spend 500 quid a week on heroin would be would alleviated. Be if you google using Google's special, like, quote, unquote, like, if you do proper Google research, there is so few people talking about the Swedish model in the context of heroin, prescription heroin, heroin methadone. Like, it's it's not on their radar because they're only interested in the demand for the sex industry. Yeah. When really the demand for the sex industry comes from what bills the sex workers are needing to pay, what their outgoings are, what their kids need. That's the demand. The demand isn't some horny dude. Like, that... That's just yeah. a convenient bogeyman. It's rare, I think, you hear about sex workers as mothers. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's... It's a, it's a kind of suppression of a knowledge, isn't it? Like, we have this really... Stella Weldon, um, 
to psychotherapist, she wrote a book called Mother Madonna Whore, which looks at the kind of female violence and, and like female like perversion in the sense of kind of aggression and rage and, and our inability to really understand that women can take up these complex and multifaceted positions so that a woman can be a mother but also can be a sexual being mm-hmm. and and do all of these things. That's really interesting, isn't it? That I think or I imagine that people have a difficult time contemplating a sex worker woman who is also a good mother. Mm. When those two things are entirely compatible and like, you know, to, to do sex work because you're very concerned that you can't live on what the state is giving to you, which is a story that I've heard, you know, more times than I can count, is that is being a good parent. That is like, you know, mm-hmm. t- taking what measures you need to do to make sure that your kid's welfare is looked after to make sure that they're not taken away from you which is not good you know for kids is what sex workers are contending with Mm -hmm. and most sex workers are doing sex work because they refuse poverty for themselves and for their children and because they they identify correctly that they're not going to get what they need from the state you know I've spoke to someone recently who whose benefits I won't name numbers because I think you know like some people can can live on benefits fine but what she was getting was just nowhere near enough for um, what her two kids needed and what she needed. And she kept going into the job centre to be like, I'm going to go back to doing sex work soon if I can't find a job and if I can't get more consistent money because they kept sanctioning her over and over again. And, like, they were just completely, like, unfeeling about that and even actually probably a little bit derogatory about Mm -hmm. it. It's like, you know, again, it's that rationality thing. Like, sex workers are rational. They're, they've got their eyes open about what they need. But the solution is not to everyone's liking. Mm-hmm. I like that you're looking at your notes. You're like, yeah. <laughs> I have stuff. Yeah. No, what, uh, what else? The foster... Oh, yeah. Mm. I, yeah, it's... You're on Twitter. What's your take? There's not immediate plans to bring it. Um, obviously, it's a substantial-ish piece of legislation that's not related to Brexit, so um, like that's sort of semi-off the cards. And more and more now, it's becoming obvious that it's not good in the US. Okay. Um, it's it's. Like... Is it already through? Yes. It came in in was it January that it came in or March? No, it was it was March, mm-hmm. and it was very quick. Um, it like it's from its inception to being signed off by Trump was one of the the most rapid like legislative shifts I mean I've it has seen. huge bipartisan support like I think what there are 100 senators and it it passed by 98 to 2 votes yeah so let's describe what it is yes um, it's a law there. that basically stop enabling sex trafficking act also known as the fight online sex trafficking act they were actually two acts that kind of got merged together so okay. people would call them sester foster or either one of the two and what it essentially does is it says that not only is it illegal to be a prostitute and to buy sex and to facilitate and to kind of be a third party in the transaction it is also illegal for web platforms to facilitate or allow um sex trafficking and the definition of sex trafficking is so loose as to also include pretty much all, all ads basically. all ads for um prostitution um and some other adult content that isn't prostitution at all but the the, the thing the thing that's so dangerous about foster sester is the ambiguity and when you've got ambiguity the web platforms mm-hmm. don't want to take that gamble and so they just to err on the on the side of safety 
won't host it. And the same thing happened when um, in the UK it was illegal for schools to promote a homosexual lifestyle, which, you know, like really affected me growing up. And in actual fact, there would have been a lot of stuff that would have been legal for schools to teach, but they erred on the side of caution and just axed all mention of sex, of, of like most sex ed, to be honest, because they were scared. And Foster Sester has the same effect on the sex industry. It puts the onus on these websites. The websites are like, oh God, you know, we don't want to deal with this prosecution. Right, because like um, the guy who runs craigslist or um or, craig yeah craig <laughs> or, and also the guys who run um red boy the, the, like a bunch of um yeah redboy.com people were arrested on like felony sex trafficking charges yeah um, which is a big deal obviously like no one wants to be arrested for that um so that's what like tech platforms are scared that that mm-hmm. one is coming for all their chief executives which is um, a very cl- it's a very clever you know way to enact fascism is to it's to outsource that um the 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 policing mm. to um people you know quote unquote in the community like obviously mm-hmm. web platforms aren't the community per se but they're definitely more in the community than the you know than the government mm-hmm. and we you know everybody can agree it's not nice to see a police officer you know haul a girl out of a brothel in her underwear and cuff her and I mean, drag not her everybody away. sadly can agree that but i know what you mean yes yeah. <laughs> the reasonable people who are going to stand by and not really see what's wrong about foster sester might find it distasteful mm-hmm. to watch the law literally come down on the sex worker mm-hmm. but it's so much nicer and neater and tidier if the web platforms just kick them off right and people feel really anxious about seeing evidence of commercial sex online like uh, melissa gira grant i think has a an essay from a couple of years ago where she talks about like kind of rising anxiety about commercial sex online being tied to in her argument i think the way in which um it was transgressing into like spaces that weren't about commercial sex so like she was saying that like for instance what made people really anxious about craigslist was that you could buy you know a old car or a mattress or look for a place to rent or a, a house sitter and then you know one paragraph down was the adult section you know where you could mm-hmm. like pay for a blowjob and like it was that like that sense that of like proximity yes between. exactly and i definitely think you see that a lot on twitter like i think um people are very anxious about seeing yeah evidence of commercial sex in spaces where they don't necessarily um, yeah, they want they want it all to be at least pushed into a kind of red light district of the internet where they don't have to think about it. Um, I guess also the really important thing to say about Foster Sester that we've not actually said yet is that the effect of kicking all the ads offline is to push sex workers onto the streets uh, or into the arms of managers mm-hmm. um, who obviously in general are going to be explosive because that's how you become a manager, but also under full criminalisation as they have in the US are like full criminalization or any kind of criminalization breeds exploitation like that yeah, yeah. produces i it. mean the people who um you know the the proponents of foster sester or the swedish model the people that they would describe as pimps love this kind of stuff because it literally um, makes sex workers more helpless and more mm. in need of a fixer-upper yeah um the the person who can set you up on a date with a client or who can kind of like bring you into a network is is benefiting from the fact that you don't have your own ad that you post when you want to work Mm -hmm. so i think that it's so obvious it feels like a lot easier to see how that mechanism works than say the kind of complicated stuff we've already described about the legal models and yet Uh, yeah when it comes to prostitution policy the fact that it's so obviously bad does not give me any hope that people will be like oh yeah no it's bad (laughs) yeah even when it benefits themselves like nobody i mean like 
not to sound like a tech bro conspiracy theorist, but everybody should care about what foster sesta means. Not only because it's putting sex workers in harm's way, but because if webs- if it can be legal for websites to censor sex workers, and no, no one gives a shit, fine. Well, it's not fine. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it can, it can, next it can be legal for websites to censor other stuff that has become like... Like LGBTQ content, like yeah. stuff around like, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like a bunch sex of people are really anxious about like with... Roe v. Ways on the chopping block, like yeah, um, I'm anxious about like um, uh, abortion stuff. I'm anxious about um, queer sexuality going back to being something that can't be discussed online because, like, I I remember that so clearly at school. Like, and we haven't made such a leap forward that we can't imagine going back. Oh yeah, it's super easy to imagine that after Roe v. Ways becomes overturned, that discussion of how of abortion healthcare related mm. healthcare would be criminalised online in exactly with a similar level. with a similar yeah. kind of like no stop securing, no yeah, stop enabling unregulated abortion yeah. or stop like yeah something something mm. along the pro life kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. right and Foster Sessa kind of is a, a watershed moment for mm-hmm. that kind of legislation. But the sex industry isn't a sympathetic thing to defend. It's not a, a populist thing for a politician to mm-hmm. you know stand and defend. But also everybody, you know, like no one no one values net neutrality yet, and they should. Um, but also, beyond that, it's really harmful for sex workers. More sex workers have um, much more dangerous working conditions already, and it's yeah. only going to get worse. So we're really anxious that that could happen here in the UK. But to be honest, it affects sex workers all around the world already, because... Um, so much of the internet is American. Is American, yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it feels like... I don't know, it feels like stuff is getting worse in some ways. Like, something that I was just thinking about when you were saying about how obviously bad it is, and, like, surely people should understand how obviously bad it is, was something that, in a way, I'm annoyed didn't happen at a time when we could put it into the book, because it's mm-hmm. just... It's this um, big fight over the University of Brighton and the University of Sussex having a sex worker healthcare and support uh, organisation at their Freshers' Fair. For their students. So yes. this is this is a support service for students who are sex workers, who might yes. be sex working to fund their way through their yes. studies. Yes, and there was just this huge, um, though, you know, there was this like kind of hatchet job on it in the Sunday Times um, saying that it was enticing um, and grooming sex worker, uh, grooming students into the prostitution. Um, so how, how so? By, by just telling existing. them, yeah, by telling them, by telling them that prostitution exists. Um, by offering the possibility that you can make yourself safer. There's a, a safer way to do it than all alone with no support. It was about yeah. safety. It yeah. wasn't about like oh glamour. Right, mm. right, and like you know, they were very, the Sunday Times article was very kind of riled up that like this stall was sort of fun like it was offering you know you know it's a freshest fair stall they all mm-hmm. offer like free tote bags and sure. free pens and it was really wild up about this um and as a result it uh today i think the university of sussex has pulled all mention of this specific sex worker healthcare service but also tht so the terence higgins trust um and I didn't know that. some other sex work, some other health and support service aimed at sex work that's been pulled from their website. And it's the same process, isn't it? Yeah, same. and it's so interesting, like because like the people who kicked up a fuss about this are all people who support the Swedish model or Nordic model, mm. and they would all say that like you know prostitution is a, is intrinsically abuse, that it's very very dangerous, and that therefore people who are selling sex like do deserve access to healthcare and support. But it's so interesting how, how their politics actually have led them to 
obstructs mm. sex workers' access to healthcare and support, which mm. should be something that's so obvious that surely you'd think we could all be in favour of. Yeah. But the message now is then, not only is it unclear whether you're deserving of or will mm-hmm. be in receipt of support, but also this is something we don't even want to talk about, so yeah. you need to be quiet and yes. shamed and somewhere yes. else. And it also props up the idea that you see presenting itself in a lot of anti-prostitution policy that uh, the only prostitute is an ex-prostitute. The only person who deserves support is one who's who's exited. Um, and, like, I, th- I have a feeling that if, you know, if the Swedish model was brought in in the UK, we would probably see support services that were aimed at kind of, like, helping people, you know, with the aftermath of a law like that, that would say to them that they will probably imply to them, if not explicitly say this support services people who've stopped like you know you can only access this if you're no longer doing it Mm -hmm. and so to hell with people who are still doing it in the more dangerous conditions who Mm -hmm. want to find out how they can avoid getting killed outside tonight which is kind of what the stall and the freshest fair would have been getting at you know like it might have been offering cookies or balloons but ultimately what we're talking about is avoiding getting raped and murdered and to abstract that is just absolute it's just abandoning people Mm -hmm. like it's not it's not about glamour it's about Mm -hmm. safety but it doesn't fit with their image of what sex worker rights is about, mm. really. Are you guys scared for yourselves, like, how some of this, both the rhetoric, but also some of the legislation might affect you? Oh, yeah, as a sex worker, I'm uh, I'm wary. Like, I, I, I regularly feel like I, I'm reminded of how even someone... I've got, like, you know, a reasonable amount of privilege, meaning that my work um, often... I often get more control over my working conditions... Um, than someone who um, you work indoors I work indoors yeah um, and yeah I I still feel regularly like I'm reminded that clients get more power when I'm less when I've got less money like mm-hmm. you know like we, we have to take some time off to promote this book and mm-hmm. so the reason I was running late to this interview today is because I felt like I had to bend over backwards to tolerate and please the client I had earlier this evening put up with his lousy behaviour um, because I need the money, like, you know, and if he, if he were coming to see me under the Swedish model, I probably wouldn't have been able to get his real name and he could have been even more of a dick to me and be completely unaccountable. And I'm, you know, I'm working with the amount of privilege I have and that's still, mm. I still feel the effect of that. And so I know that it's so much worse for people who are in even more precarious positions than me. So it's not to say that it would be equally bad for everybody, but it would impact everybody if sex work buying sex was criminalized in the uk so yeah i do worry and i worry about my friends as well like what people would do if they couldn't place ads mm-hmm. online um if nobody could use twitter anymore which is where a lot of people pick up business these days people are genuinely frightened like you know yeah. the they're not abstract discussions people mm-hmm. are, in the aftermath of foster sepsis that happening in the us i was getting like four hours sleep a night i was in about 50 different whatsapps and signal groups for people being like does anybody know like what is going to happen yeah. like people i remember the night it yeah. came in watching all the websites shutter like one by one it's based about four hours i think i was up late so it's like two in the morning and between about 11 at night and two in the morning i, I can't remember all of the names now but i remember craigslist personals went down at about mm-hmm. two in the morning i remember looking at my phone and being like oh my god that's really 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 bad like mm-hmm. that's you know, it's, it's the equivalent of like uh, in a working class area, the local factory just burning down and nobody knowing if they were going to have a job, mm. you know, to, to go back to. Yeah. Like for some people, a platform like Craigslist, Backpage or TER, another American site that went down, 
that was their entire income. Like they don't have their own website or they don't use Twitter. They are, you know, that was it. That was everything. Um, so it is really, really scary. Yeah. Um, even for two people as privileged as we are, like it's still really scary. Like even though we don't talk about our personal experiences in the book because we don't want to distract too much from what we're saying and it shouldn't be about personal testimony. But like, yeah, I don't mind saying that. I'm fucking shitting myself sometimes. Mm. It's It's not good. What are you hoping that the book will do? Um, I don't know. Floor people. <laughs> not come for six. I don't know. I go back and forth between feeling really hopeless about the ability of written arguments to change anything. Um, but, yeah, and sometimes, sometimes I just feel like, you know, nothing nothing changes through writing anything. Organising changes things. Um, but... I really, I really hope. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily like visualize a lot of people doing a one eighty in their politics or their thinking. Although hopefully that will happen sometimes. But I'm really hoping that people who um, are on the fence or undecided will be equipped with the knowledge that they need to become firm yes. in their ideas. Or and people who are like pro sex worker rights, but in a kind of liberal way, will move into mm-hmm. a more like um, materialist, radical space with it. Yeah, and like also sex workers and um, people who who maybe did sex work previously, like to read it and to feel like somebody out there is at least writing their truth um, really matters. Like, you know, as we've said a few times, like even if no one bought or read the book, which I mean, you know, that would be terrible, but at least a book written by sex workers exists mm. and it exists um, and it will be there throughout history as evidence that actually sex workers were really fucking pissed off and they knew what they were pissed off about and they were legitimate commentators in a discussion that never includes them. So at the very least, I'd hope that people feel buoyed by that. But I also hope it changes minds yeah. and um, enters into discussions and disrupts things. Yeah. And, and re- maybe makes it, more, people. makes it more obvious that... Um, like so there's so much caricature of like what sex workers are saying you know we're caricatured as saying that it's really glamorous it's about empowerment blah 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 and i just i hope it helps people see through those caricatures a bit more and be like maybe the, the people who are insisting that those are the politics of the sex worker rights movement maybe they're no longer like insisting that in good faith like that's you can't i just think you can't claim to be a serious person and and think that anymore um <laughs> not a serious person <laughs> And there was a big thing about visibility, wasn't there? I mean, and I think that struck me in particular because I think visibility in both its symbolic and rational sense is a massive part of psychology and and therapy. It's like, let's face reality. Like, it's always about getting people to open their eyes and see what's really happening rather than being somewhere else. And consistently with discussions about sex work, as I think is similarly with... um, kind of queer gender identities and homosexuality and all that is um as, as long as it's in- invisible or somewhere else and we can put it away and I can imagine it's not happening or I can pretend to myself that it, it doesn't exist and it struck me as really interesting because um here so we're in you know central London end of Hartley Street and but just outside there's a, a phone box with call cards taped to the side of it and you know we're 10 minutes away from Soho and you know of course there is sex work happening all around us yet there's this kind of shared wish that that's not the case um and i think what's really important about the book is that it's 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 
concrete, isn't it? It's like a, it's a fixed physical thing. It's it's there. It's visible. It's a statement about what's really going on, like what the reality is on the ground from people who are there doing the work, talking to people, organising, being activists. And I think it's very difficult to argue with. It's very difficult to dismiss because it's just there. Yes, <laughs> although we're both going to have to come to terms with the fact that people definitely are going to dismiss it. I feel like at yeah. some point during this process we talked about like each going to like some specific therapy around like um, like inevitably, you know, like you send this thing, you work so hard and you want this thing to go out into the mm. world and like do stuff and actually yeah. like... And some people are going to be like, that's bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we just have to find a way to, for that to be okay. But another thing that I hope that the book does do um, beyond the book itself is I hope that it acts as a vanguard for other sex workers to write books because like there are so few books out there about prostitution policy written by current prostitutes Mm -hmm. and that is uh not good enough you know they should be the the majority of sex work books should be written by sex workers not written by people about us so if this book just kind of opens the eyes of publishers and other people in power to sort of say hey why don't we get more sex workers to write about sex work why don't we have a book written by um you know a street working uh, trans woman who works under full criminalization, like maybe they'd also have the insight about their own lives that we should be hearing. That would be great. That would be great. It shouldn't be so, such a radical idea though. Mm. And yeah, it is. Is there anything else you want to say or that like We should out? say why Putinesca is called Putinesca. Yes, we absolutely <laughs> should. Yes. <laughs> so we should bookend the discussion with pasta. Do you want to go yes. into it? Um, like, I didn't even realise this until after putanesca was my favourite food, but and I should have realised that the root of the word putanesca is puta, um, and it's called putanesca because it's so-called the type of ingredients that are in putanesca, like non-perishable briny things, are the type of things that would be in the kitchen cupboard ready to go when a hooker has had a long day. A long day of hooking and uh, she can just knock it together with very little energy because she is either lazy or busy. Yes. I have a feeling that um, Nigella Is it laziness Lawson, or business? Uh, some combination. I think it's also like a kind of in-between clients yes. kind of, yes. It's a bit stigmatising but also it's a bit true. It's brilliant. <laughs> like, we, you know, we're busy. We're busy people. Uh, That's why we like eggs too. Boiled egg. Oh my god, there should be a cookbook. Yeah, hookers it would just be eggs and pasta, I'm telling you now. Yeah. <laughs> or it would be stuff that can sit in a like a rice cooker all day long. Apparently well tiramisu uh, was also invented by sex workers. I believe that. Yeah. Um, in Trieste, is that in Italian? That's like a northern Italian town. Yeah. Uh, it's, mm. was, how, like, that legend has it. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, like, you know, there's... Mm. I, I've heard of sex workers who... Um, not me, I should, I hasten to add, but some, some like, uh, quite classy ladies that I've heard of incorporate cooking for clients oh, into yes. their repertoire as a way to kind of... That cons- seems terrifying. Make, I know. Me. I mean, I've actually, I've actually witnessed a friend of mine try to cook food for a client as a sort of, like, way to impress him, and in the end she ended up getting um, someone else to cook it, and she passed it off as her yes. own. Yes. But, it's um, terrifying and also weirdly intimate. Like, I don't really mm, want to... I know. I mean, but someone says there is... Yeah. <laughs> It's just wrong to cook for clients. It's just too intimate. You can't sell. You can't sell, you can't sell cooking. That. That's unalienated labour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that would be a really interesting project, though. The in-between meals. Mm-hmm. Like, just mm-hmm. as a kind of little anthology. Yes. yes. Just quickly stuff it in your mouth. Mm-hmm. That could be the title. Oh my god. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, people are really funny about food in the way that they're funny about sex. And I, but I say Absolutely. funny, I mean like full of anxieties about the corporate, like the reality of the body. Um, you know, this is also why I think we have anxieties about drug use because it's about pleasure and it's about like what we're putting but inside also, us. But like, food and sex both remind us of death. Yeah, uh, I think. Yeah, <laughs> they do. And like and our bodies and yeah, the objects. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just something we talk about a lot. It's like what what go what is outside of the body that goes in mm-hmm. and affects you and mm-hmm. and sex is that. And there's a reason that prostitutes are more stigmatized and reviled than say um someone who just beats clients on the bum mm-hmm. because we literally like are penetrated. Mm-hmm. And food is particular also similarly difficult and emotional for people and so mm-hmm. is drugs. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a book I could definitely write. Yes. Getting high, Stop selling them. sex, and eating eggs. <laughs> ah. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. So I feel like we should end on that note. That was perfect. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks again to Juno and Molly for making the time to speak to me. The book is out now, and until January 1st, it is half price on the Verso website, so that's $7.99 and comes with the free ebook. And I would really recommend it as a book club read as it raises some very important discussion points. I will be back soon with some fab guests covering everything from psychiatry to evolutionary biology, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss those. And that just leaves me to thank you very, very much for listening, and until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.